Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When it comes to common sense, they're nowhere. We're a very long way from having AI that has what we might recognize as common sense. And I think one of the interesting things about AI research is what it is showing us about human cognition and perhaps creating a bit more respect for what we are actually able to do, that this thing called common sense is actually far from obvious. Hello and welcome to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of the magazine. This week, we'll be talking to science writer Philip Ball about artificial intelligence. Can it ever really match, let alone beat, the minds of humans? As many of you will know, Phil is a regular writer for Prospect, and his most recent essay takes a deep dive into the world of artificial intelligence research. While researchers like to talk about machines achieving human-level intelligence, it seems that, in truth, robots... It seems that, in truth, robots are far from beating us at our own game. But first, I'm joined by our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim. Samir, hello. Hello. Uh, Now, you commissioned Phil for this piece, not for the first time. He's been writing for us for for many, many years, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been a regular contributor. And one of the great things about Phil is he's an expert in so many different subjects. So not only biology, physics, um, he's also written books about medieval architecture, water in China, I think was his last book, and also about transferring brains from humans to, um, you know, growing a second brain. That was his last yes, one. Yes, la- and his last big piece, for, or one of his last big pieces for us was all about how he grew himself another brain. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of his best pieces um, was also about creativity and AI. So he did something for us about whether... Could a could an algorithm write a, a Mozart symphony? That that was the basic idea, and why it's such an interesting subject to me is this idea of what it means to be human. What is that sort of intangible, difficult to pin down quality of humanness that would differentiate us from a very talented machine? And last year we ran a piece by David Edmonds, which also did uh, very well, and it was all about chess, and it was about the fact that since '97, um, I think, when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, the advances in technology has meant that you know your average iphone app can beat uh, a grandmaster and that was in a sense a piece about how extraordinarily far ai has come and how incredibly um much better than it than it used to be um so that was a sort of a piece in a way in praise of ai and where it's going so it was quite nice when phil actually approached me with this um uh, suggested review essay uh, and he was talking to me about well actually maybe it's not at all 
that it's cracked up to be and that there are a lot of um, Panglossian um, uh, optimistic approaches which might need to be sort of critiqued a little bit. Um, it's interesting you, you mentioned him approaching you. Phil is one of those writers where um, we rarely go to him and say, you know, what have you got for us or would you like to write this? He's often pitching to us and his his pitches, given that he's writing often about science, I think give you a real sense of how good he is at explaining really complicated things in a quite straightforward way. So I remember receiving an email from him saying, you know, I've grown a second brain. Like, okay, yeah, I I, want to read that. Um, And again, with a a recent one, he he pitched to us, it was simply the headline said, what if dark matter didn't exist? Yeah, absolutely. The dark matter one was really fascinating. And editing that was a, a real education. And just the back and forth process of going back to him saying, could you just clarify this a bit or could you do that? It's a real education for us. And this is where the pleasure of the job, sometimes I feel it's a rather selfish pleasure. Often you'll commission something really because you want to learn more about it and you want to understand a bit more about it. And uh, Phil is the sort of ideal ideal person for that. Yeah, and he'll always come up with something slightly interesting or, or a twist. I mean, in this piece, it's fundamentally about you know, what's been described as the hard problem of consciousness, you know, what it means to be a human. So it's not actually just about, you know, whether Google Translate is so much better now and how um, and what that means, but it's about what does it mean to be a human being? Okay. Um, At that moment, that big question, what it means to be a human being, uh, we'll take a mind break. And when we return, Samir will be talking to Phil. Phil, thanks for joining us on the Prospect podcast. Um, we're here to talk about AI and artificial intelligence and whether it's all it's cracked up to be. Scientists and indeed novelists and other creative people have been dreaming about creating a kind of artificial intelligence for you know, centuries, really, creating clever robots that can rival human intelligence. But how far have we come and how far have we got to go? We're a long way from having anything that rivals human intelligence in some senses and in some of the most important senses. But we have artificial intelligence systems that can do far better than humans in other senses. So we have systems today that are very good at certain things, um, but those things are precisely the things that we're not good at. So dealing with huge amounts of data uh, for example, and this is one of the main uses of AI now, to analyze data, to you know, analyze complex scientific data or financial data. Um, but when it comes to common sense, they're nowhere. We're a very long way from having AI that has what we might recognize as common sense. And I think one of the interesting things about AI research is what it is showing us about human cognition and perhaps creating a bit more respect for what we are actually able to do, that this thing called common sense is actually far from obvious. It's far from obvious what it is, how we do what we do, and in particular, how we, if we decide we want to do this, how we can build it into AI systems. I think a lot of us are familiar with the opening scene of Blade Runner, where it's a series of questions and answers, a kind of cheering test, trying to define whether something is a, a replicant or a human. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, the cheering test and what that where that comes from and, and what that's trying to define? Well, it's named after Alan Turing, who was a pioneer of uh, the theory 
of computation, amongst other things. Um, he came up with this idea in 1950, and he called it the imitation game. Um, and it was it appeared in in a paper that was analysing the question of whether machines can think. Um, so this is the the question Turing posed, and in. In essence, I think what Turing was really asking was, what, what do we mean by that rather than can we do it? Um, and so he posed this test as a way of thinking about that. And his idea was that there would be a, the, the, a human and then the robot or the AI or whatever. Um, the two of them would be posed questions by a human panel. And on the basis of the responses to those questions, um, the, the question was whether the humans could determine which was which, which was the AI and which was the robot. Um, and so they would be everyday questions. And uh, Turing's suggestion was that if the AI seemed to be indistinguishable from the human, it's very hard to find a good reason to deny it um, that this capability of being able to think. W w what he wasn't suggesting was that there was that that was powered by any kind of consciousness sentience self-awareness or anything it was simply uh, a question of how well uh, an ai could imitate a human and um so th this was the question turing was posing and he, he was he was never really suggesting this um as a practical test for distinguishing between robots and humans as it's used in in in, in blade runner um but this is the way it's come to be seen today um now i should point out that the Turing test is really seen today by AI researchers as no big deal. Uh, if you have an AI system that can fool humans in some way into thinking that it's a human, no one would get too excited about that. And in fact, there are some uh, examples where that has been done. And, and in fact, you know, it may be that many of us are familiar with the, this experience of you know interacting online with some entity, and you're not quite sure whether this is a bot or a human. You get one of those pop-up boxes on a website, and you're sort of responding, you know, asking questions, and they're responding back, and you, you aren't really sure whether they are a human or not. Are you? No, yeah. no, exactly, and and it doesn't really matter in that context you know as long as it's giving us uh, reliable advice and there are other you know people talk about a Turing test for for example computer generated music can we tell whether it's been made by a computer or a, or a human or computer generated art or whatever and all of this you know it's all very well but it doesn't really prove or tell us very much or it isn't you know even particularly useful so the Turing test today is not some it's not any kind of gold standard in AI and you know this is really the the, the, the key point about the AI systems today that you could say they are fragile or they are very good at certain tasks at the tasks that they're designed to do but once they step outside of that once we're thinking in terms of what is called general AI um, which is you know, just being able to, co to cope with pretty much any situation we might throw at it. We are a long way from that. In fact, you know, one person in AI says, if you want an estimate for when we will have that sort of general AI, then you know, take your best estimate, double it, triple it, quadruple it, and that's probably more likely to be right. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We do feel somewhat threatened by machines, though, don't we? In the 1990s, when um, Deep Blue, the IBM computer, beat Gary Kasparov at chess, it was it was a major moment. People were, were felt the, the sense that uh, uh, a human could be beaten by a machine. Now, of course, you know your average iPhone chess app can beat a grandmaster, um, but yeah, it hasn't stopped people playing chess and humans com- competing against each other. Uh, and um, chess is a very particular kind of thing that a computer would be very good at. So, I mean, how significant are those kind of advances, really? Well, um, they're significant as signposts, as you kind of indicate, you know, that we, we, it shows we've reached a certain stage. But chess, as you say, it's, it's a finite game. There are only so many moves you can make. And of course, there are far too many for any human to keep in their head at any one moment. But in principle, this is the exactly the sort of problem that uh, today's AI is good at, because, you know, in principle, you can just enumerate the possible moves ahead from any given position on the board and figure out, you know, which is, is the best one. A, in, in a way, a bigger uh, step forward with, with the game Go, the, the, uh, the Chinese game, which um, has simpler rules in a sense, but has more permutations, more possibilities. And, you know, this too, AI has now um, uh, beaten top human players. In, in Go. When the, the Go AI called AlphaGo that was developed by one, uh, Google's subsidiary company Alphabet, when, 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 that was, when that had its big victory, many top Go players were surprised at least and I, th- I think impressed also by the, the way it did it, the strategy it used, that it made you know, certain moves that astonished them, that they felt a human player would never make. And this sort of raises the question of whether there could be some kind of what we might recognize as creativity in AI. But what's interesting in that is that some of the strategies that it had developed, I understand some human players have started to think, well, maybe that's a good way to play it. Um, so in that sense, it can be a source of creativity for us. And, you know, people who are using AI systems for other kinds of, you know, for explicitly artistic reasons, for example, making music, they sort of regard it as a resource for ideas. So, you know, we're at that level, certainly, with with AI. But in terms of, I mean, certainly if you look at any AI-generated text, fiction, for example, it's it's pretty strange at the moment. Um, But occasionally you find embedded within there a phrase, a sentence that really strikes you, really, you know, takes you back. And and I can well imagine writers thinking, well, that'll be nice. I'll use that little fragment. But you ha- you'd never get a sense that there's a mind guiding this, that there's some overarching structure. This is really the problem with any AI that 
you know, pretend that claims to be creative, large scale structure in music or in in um, uh, in in literature. It doesn't really know how to do that because that's the kind of thing that humans do. What is the story? What is the narrative here? Where where are we going? Rather than just finding new ways to piece together the elements. So in a way, a, an AI algorithm or whatever could could imitate a novel, but could it read a novel? Well, it could read it in the sense that it can... Tra- we have, of course, translation programs. And these days, they're pretty good. And in fact, really only in the past, I'd say, five to ten years have they got... You know, we probably all remember the early days of Google Translate where you get gibberish. No, you don't anymore. So they can read it in the sense... In that sense, you know, they, if you can translate it, then, you know, there's... Uh, you, you've in some sense assimilated the text, but not in terms of any sort of understanding. And there's no sense of context there. So it's very easy to create a sentence that would be, we would make sense of because of our knowledge of how the world works. Let's say Mary went to visit her mother because she was ill. Now we know who the she at the end of that sentence refers to, but a, a, an AI system will, will struggle with that because you know it's that kind of contextual understanding that's difficult. Um, so you know in that sense, AI has no understanding, and certainly these translation programs. I mean, you know, they they really have no understanding of what it is they're translating. It's simply a fitting of one pattern to another. That's all AI is doing. So I, I think it's fair to say that an AI system, you know, reading a novel, uh, it, it doesn't develop any sense of the story. Um, it doesn't develop any sense of character. It is simply making sense of the patterns of text that it has learnt, you know, from, generally speaking, from training with other examples um, to, let's say, do a translation. It couldn't answer a comprehension test, or at least it would be very easy to design one that would completely floor it. With something like Google Translate, often uh, why it's got a lot better is because it uses human input, doesn't it? So it asks you, is this a good translation? And it gets all these different examples from people saying, no, actually, that's a little quirk in the language. That's a little kink in language. It's not sort of totally logical there. So in a way, when we're using Google Translate, um, it's, it's sort of a big pot, an accumulation of thousands and millions of human responses so in a way we're just we're dealing with in a way a collective human uh i hesitate to word use use word consciousness but there is there is a there is a big human element even within the ai system isn't there it the the most of the ai systems we have at the moment rely on precisely they rely on some sort of input to be trained so they're they're um generally uh of a type called deep learning systems um and this literally means that that they learn and you know that wasn't obvious in the early days of ai um it w- wasn't obvious that that was the right way to do it people thought you would just have systems of rules logical rules that it would sort of crunch through um to to you know turn an input into an output um but then along came uh, 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 this process of of learning of and so-called machine learning and very recently with deep learning which is just a modification of it that's made it much more powerful it's got much, much better. So it takes input data and on the basis of a training set, it learns what the corresponding output should be. So you give it a whole series of images of cats, let's say a thousand images, 
different images from different angles. And from this, the, the system learns how to recognize a cat. And the hope is that then you can give it any picture of a cat and it will see a cat in there. Or if it doesn't have a cat in there, it will tell you that it doesn't have a cat in there. So it, it requires humans, uh, in this case, to have made that initial classification so that it knows what the right answer should be. Um, so it's absolutely true that uh, the more input it has, you know, the better the system gets. But on the other hand, uh, for one thing, it's not always clear. And in fact, in many cases, it's not at all clear on what basis it's making that decision. So, you know, whereas we might say, well, that's a cat because it, you know, it has pointy ears and, you know, we just somehow intuit the general features of a cat. It seems clear that AI doesn't do that. There is something else that's going on um, that causes it to, rec you know, to recognize a particular thing as a cat, which turn out to be quite easy to fool if you understand how to do that uh, in ways that, you know, would never fool us. So, yes, the more human input it gets, uh, the, you know, the better it gets. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it gets any less easy to fool if, when, when you know how to do that. The idea that we can bring consciousness into machines somehow is, um, is often mooted. Isn't the problem, though, that we don't really understand what consciousness is? No, we, uh, we, we don't. Um, there are people who will tell you that they do, and there are theories of consciousness, but there is no single theory that neuroscientists uh, will agree on. In fact, there are many different theories, and there's, there's no sign of any consensus uh, about that. Um, and I think partly that's because we don't even know how to frame the problem. We don't know quite what the problem We know we have a sense that consciousness exists. We each have an individual sense. We assume that it exists in others as well. But we don't quite know what it is that we are sensing, what we mean by consciousness. So it's a hugely difficult problem for neuroscience. Um, at, uh, you know, I think many people would feel it's a long, we're a very long way from having any real understanding of that. And so the question of whether we could ever build it into a machine or whether it will ever emerge from the AI systems that we're building. we, To be frank, we don't even know how to think about that problem. We don't know how to recognize consciousness. Um, now, there are ideas about how you might do that, and it's an important question, uh, not so much for AI, but for medical science. You know, you sometimes need to know if a, if a comatose patient uh, or someone in what is called a vegetative state, if there is still consciousness consciousness uh, within them. So, you know, we urgently need uh, some kind of uh, theory or at least some kind of test for consciousness. But there's, there's none that is sort of universally recognized at the moment as really telling you that consciousness is present in this entity. So the idea that you could sort of download your, your mind onto a computer and then you would somehow exist in that form, um, that's a long way away, if, if ever. I feel that, I mean, there are people who believe that, that we will do that and they say, well, look, you know, we're made of physical stuff. Um, there's only so much sort of information that the brain can hold if you can get hold of that information somehow and, you know, store it in a massive hard drive, then surely that's also going to that's going to replicate your your mind and your consciousness. Um, I, I don't uh, believe we even know uh, whether that's the right way to formulate the problem. Um, you know, if we don't know what consciousness is, then we can't have any 
theory of how you can you can put it into a machine it at the very least it seems to me to be a dynamical thing that isn't sort of predicated on just the instantaneous state of your brain you know it's something that's happening <laughs> all the time drawing on you know or on, on past experience in ways that we don't quite understand drawing on sensory input in ways we don't understand so I think the question of whether we will ever download consciousness into some kind of machine, it's not a well-posed question. Um, So I'm very, very sceptical about anyone who thinks that will be possible. I mean, that leads us into all sorts of other kinds of quandaries, doesn't it? Because if you were to somehow... you know, imbue uh, a robot with consciousness. You know, do they do they have rights? Um, are they just then? Do they just become our sort of slaves that we order around and do things for us? Or uh, and of course, you know, the the great fantasy of all science fiction writers, they just rise up and become our overlords. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, that fantasy has been around uh, for long, for longer than robots have. You find that fantasy in in Frankenstein, for example. That's the fantasy of the created being of any sort. Um, and you know, I think we need to see it in that in that context. Um, there is a, a developing field of robot ethics, and there are people who, and I think it's quite reasonable that we should be thinking about you know that question of whether there will come a time when we will have ethical responsibilities towards robots. Robots, or more broadly, what are the ethics of robot-human interactions? So, you know, I think it's it's a thing, a question we need to be thinking about. But I think this question of you know whether the robot will be conscious in some sort of human-like way, and then we'll have responsibilities towards it. So many of these questions are predicated on the idea that well, once robots or AI we should say really well, once AI becomes complex enough, it'll be like us. Um, there is absolutely no reason to think that. We may, and in fact there are good reasons, to want to design AI systems to be more like us so that they have the kind of common sense that we have. That might make them more robust to the sort of errors that they're prone to. But I don't see any reason why we should think that, that consciousness is a single thing that you know all minds of sufficient complexity possess and uh, and it's going to be like what we have. I, I think it's quite possible that we may find AI systems that uh, have... I think they're going to challenge our ideas of what sentience and consciousness could actually mean. And perhaps we're going to have to be broader, as we already need to be when we're thinking about, for example, animal welfare. So I think one thing that particularly interests me about AI research is how, as it develops, it might change our, it might broaden our minds about the kinds of consciousness or sentience or mind, really, that can exist in the world. Yeah, I was reading the other day about plant rights, um, which which I sort of, you know, slightly raised a smile, but then I actually started reading about it and then it, it's much more tricky than you might think. I mean, if they, the plants grow and they have a kind of sentience of, the, uh, of their own and then what that actually means in comparison to animals and they, 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 well, they certainly respond to things. Um, I mean, clearly they have to. They respond uh, in a more limited way in some senses than animals do because simply because they're rooted to the spot. They have a different set of requirements to mobile animals. But, you know, we also know that um, I think not just individual plants, but plant ecosystems are complex systems that, um, you know, in, in, in some uh, forests, for example, the root systems that exist there create communications between the different plants between different trees um i don't 
feel it's necessarily the case we ha- that we have to think about that as somehow the the forest being conscious but i think we it, it does force us to think you know that there's much more complexity in there and there's much more communication in there than uh we might immediately recognize so it's good to you know be broad-minded i suppose about the kinds of uh let's say, communication uh, between um, living entities that that can exist and whether there could be some kind of, not collective mind, but collective existence in systems like that. Just finish off by thinking about, you know, we're talking about AI systems and their ethical uh, conundrums that they uh, raise. Um, It's happening now, really, because we have driverless cars and... um, if they become ubiquitous, more and more cases to do with, you know, responsibilities to do with, you know, if they kill someone and who is responsible for that. It's somehow with humans, you know, we accept the fact that humans are flawed and then can be prosecuted and there's some sort of moral responsibility if they do something wrong. And we're accept- we, we're happy to accept, you know, in a way, thousands of deaths on the road, but yet one death from a computer-activated uh, sort of AI system throws us into a total... Um, uh, throws us off, throws us off beam, as it were. Um, is it is this something to do with the idea that if we're giving responsibility to AI, um, it's not accountable in the way that a human can be? We haven't quite figured that out yet. No, we? I think that's absolutely right. I think we don't know because these are completely new entities, completely new systems, and we don't have a moral framework for thinking about them. Um, so that disturbs us. I think also this this question of, you know, what, what we're effectively having to do is to hand over control to a system that perhaps we don't, we don't have an intuitive sense of how it's reasoning. And that's the unsettling thing. You know, I think we've, we would find that with, with a human if we, you know, if we, we meet someone who is, for example, sociopathic and we don't really, you know, we don't have a sense of their mind, uh, that disturbs us too. But I think with, with machines, it's even more because they literally are more, more alien than us. So I think it is, it is really part, uh, in large part to do with that sense that we're handing over control to something we don't understand. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel I, I think driverless cars will come possibly within my lifetime and I may benefit from that. I, in some sense, I, you know, I welcome that possibility because we know that in principle it could be safer. It could create fewer traffic jams. You know, it could ease the flow of traffic because it drives much more intelligently and perhaps with global knowledge of what, you know, the other vehicles are doing. So I think there are um, there are all sorts of positive uh benefits that we could we could get from that but we absolutely do need to to figure out the the morals that you know how, what what sort of ethics we will apply to a system like that and what's interesting to me is that some studies that have been done globally show that in different parts of the world there will probably be different conclusions drawn about where the you know d- depending on the the kind of ethics that a particular society is embedded within you know that will affect the decisions that are made about these machine ethics that uh, these questions of machine ethics that we're we're going to have to face so you know it may well be the case that uh, there is no universal system of morality that is going to tell us how to program a driverless car um you know we we may find different rules we probably will find different rules for that in different countries just as we have different driving traffic rules phil ball thank you thank you
that's all for this week. Uh, my thanks to Samir Rahim, who you just heard there with Phil Ball. Thank you very much for joining us this week on the Prospect interview. You can, of course, read Phil's essay in our new issue, which is out on newsstands right now, um, or, of course, even on our website, www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And finally... If you enjoyed the prospect interview, which, frankly, if you've got this far, I'm sure you did, uh, please do leave us a rating and a review um, on whichever platform you listen to it. It really does help other listeners to find us. My name's Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.